You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. We rejoice with Ray and what God is doing in his life, and we are so excited for his baptism uh, in the 11 o'clock gathering today. And speaking of celebration, I just want to say thank you to those who are part of our serve day yesterday. Uh, a lot of good things happening, packing over 20,000 meals, uh, praying for people in our community, um, able to serve organizations in our community, and four people gave their life uh, to Christ yesterday as a result of what we're doing. So praise God for that. Um, and I want to uh, encourage you to uh, join us tonight for Niceville Strong, if you're able, at 6 o'clock at the Niceville High School Auditorium. Uh, this is just a great time of believers from multiple churches coming together uh, to pray for and hear about uh, those in our community who are struggling uh, with areas of mental health and drug addiction and suicide. And so uh, it'll be a great time of worship and prayer and equipping. And so we'd love for you to be there tonight at 6 o'clock. If you're visiting with us this morning or perhaps watching on line for the first time. We're so glad that you are here with us. Uh, we'd love to connect with you. You can text the word connect to the number that you see on the screen and one of our connect team members will follow up with you this week. If you're with us uh, uh, on campus, you can stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus as well. We are in a series called Now I See as we talk about what happens to Christians as they uh, live a life for Christ. And today we are talking about our morality, my morality. Ephesians chapter five, verse three through 14 speaks to this. And as we look at these verses, we will talk about the appeal that Paul makes here to our identity in Christ. And then we will talk about what that looks like in our lives, then, then the text really calls us to drive home the seriousness of these issues, and we'll conclude by talking about what Christians should do in light of these things. So uh, we'll begin by reading Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible." For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
God, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would help our hearts to be receptive to your word. And God, that you would increase, that we would decrease, and that you would get glory as a result of our time in your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The first word that Paul uses here is but. This conjunction joins together verse two and three. What we just read about our conduct is connected to the thesis statement of this chapter, which we examined last week, verses one and two. I'll read those again now. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To sum this up, as we move about our life, we should seek to imitate God. This is sort of a definition of your life as a Christian. Imitate God. Imitate God. That's kind of a big request, right? What would God do? What would God say? How would God treat them? How would God respond? All of life becomes God-centered and God-driven. Now, I want to make an important distinction here. Most religions teach that if you imitate God, you will become his child. Christianity says, imitate God because you are his child. All of the do's and don'ts that we are going to talk about today and next week, or that we ever talk about for that matter, come out of this. You see, and it's important that you understand this, Christianity is a response to the favor of God not a recipe for it. Christianity is a response to the favor of God, not a recipe for it. Christianity is realizing the gift of grace in Christ and believing upon that gift of grace and living our life in light of that gift of grace. If you jump ahead to verse eight in this chapter, you see Paul appealing to this as the basis for our morality. Verse eight. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Here, Paul uses the imagery of darkness and light that is found throughout the Bible. Darkness symbolizing the realm of sin and its power, and light representing God's will and Jesus coming into this world. John 8, verse 12, perhaps being the clearest articulation of this. It says, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, notice what Paul doesn't say in Ephesians chapter five, verse eight. He doesn't say, you once walked in the darkness, now you walk in the light. He says, you once were darkness, but now you are light You have the light of life. Walk in that, Christian. Walk as children of the light. Not out of obligation or expectation of blessing. Walk because you are in the light. Look at verse nine. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Good, simplified, is being good to people, being concerned with what is good for them. Right means righteousness. Righteousness is being concerned with what God wants. Righteousness for a Christian is our position, secured by the gift of Jesus, and our direction, living for God, 
because of where we stand with Jesus. True comes from the word aletheia, which means objective truth. The truth is what you seek, model, and what you proclaim. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and true and right. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Discern means test or examine what is pleasing to the Lord. This is language of intentionality. This is language of growth. Pleasing or acceptable is servant language. This is the Christian life, to be a servant of God. One of the best movies from the 80s is The Princess Bride. And if you remember at the beginning of the movie, Wesley, who's the slave boy, and Buttercup, who uh, is his love and ha is the owner of him, you know, her dad on his farm, uh, they own him. And he says to her, because of her position of authority and because of his love for her, when she asked him to do something, as you wish. And that, you know, is kind of a theme throughout this movie. For the Christian, because of the authority of God and because of the love that we have for God, we say to God, as you wish, whatever you will, whatever you desire, that is the Christian life. And this is not merely theoretical or intellectual. This is a call to action. This echoes Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, this text tells us we learn who God is. We learn the will of God by submitting to the will of God, by submitting to, the, to God. And it tells us that we do this because of the mercies of God. That's important to understand when we are talking about morality, when we are talking about transformation. Obedience doesn't lead to salvation. Salvation leads to obedience. Obedience doesn't lead to salvation. Salvation does lead to obedience. We are obeying Christ. We are becoming like Christ. We are doing what he says. We are not being conformed to the patterns of this world because of the change that has happened in us. We're doing this because it's a response, because of the relationship. We are with God, that puts us in the light. And so we want what is good and true and right. This is our identity. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now what Paul does in this text is he lists some ways that that identity reveals itself what it looks like. And so let's examine those things. Let's look at morality that is consistent with our identity. Morality that is consistent with our identity. I just wanna drive this home here if you're not a Christian. I don't want you to try and live by these morals. I want you to have an identity in Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, because of our identity in Christ, we want to be people who trust him and say, as you wish. And so verse three and four shows us four ways that this manifests itself in the life of a Christian. Look at those verses. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you 
as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The first way that we see a morality that is consistent with identity here in this text is that we are to be people who flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says this as well. The Greek word used is pornia. It refers to any sexual activity that is not God's design. It is where we get the word pornography. The word is thought by some to be used abundantly in Greek literature to refer to various forms of sexual sin, but it is actually rarely found in Greek literature. And when it is used, it typically refers to prostitution or homosexuality. Sexual immorality was an enormous problem in the Ephesian culture. Adultery was commonplace in Ephesus. Homosexuality was present in Ephesus. Prostitution was a booming industry. Slave girls were bought and sold for sex. In the temples, sex cults had young men and women who belonged to the temple who could be used for sexual purposes for their adherence. In the Hebrew Mishnah, it said that a Jewish woman was to never be alone with a Gentile man because the culture had become such that people pursued their sexual desires without really considering the wishes and desires of other people, and it was causing great problems in their culture. We've come a long way. We live in a culture that even in my lifetime has become more and more rapidly focused on whatever it is you desire to do should be justified for you. It moved from what happens in the bedroom stays in the bedroom to here is who I am and you better accept my sexual preferences and my sexual indulgences. We are in a culture that is sexually immoral. But like today, people in Ephesus were giving their life to Jesus Christ. They were getting saved out of that. However, they were bringing some of their culture into the church community, and it was infiltrating the behaviors and practices of Christians contrary to what God had called us to. Now, in our southern conservative culture, I don't think we can fully grasp that sexual immorality would begin to become rampant in a church, but it would kind of be like if somebody were a heavy drinker and partier, they became a Christian, and that was just a part of their lifestyle and their social you know, activity, and then they began to kind of say, hey, this is fun, and bring other Christians into it. Or if somebody was a gossip and talked about others all the time, and they became a Christian, and so then when they joined the church, kind of brought others into that. We're Baptists, so unfortunately what happens sometimes is new Christians come to our church and we teach them to gossip. That's backwards, but anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, sexual sin is a sin against your own body. This might be contrary to what you've been taught, but all sin is not equal. All sin is equal in the sense that it therefore disqualifies us from holiness and means that we fall short of the glory of God. But all sin is not equal in terms of its consequences and its effect. And the Bible tells us that sexual sin causes us to sin against our own body. It affects our minds. There are all kinds of temptations to indulge in sexual immorality today. 
Paul is trying to put a stop at that in his writing, in Ephesus and today. Now, I've heard some people be like, well, what does that phrase mean in the Greek? You don't need to know what it means in the Greek to know you need to stop. I've had some single people ask me, okay, well, how far is too far? It's exactly how far you are thinking about going if you are asking that question. You really need to see this. Sexual sin has a damaging effect on your mind and your body, and you need to flee from it, not flirt with it. Paul also says, in all impurity. That word means moral uncleanness. It's usually associated with sexual sins in the New Testament, but he does say all impurity, so he's not referring to only sexual sin, but more general immorality. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 17, verse through 19, Paul wrote, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He says, that's not who you are anymore. Flee immorality. Flee sexual immorality. The second thing that our text tells us uh, about a morality that is consistent with our identity is to be content. Paul addresses covetousness in verse three, which can be translated greed. Greedy to have what you do not have. The 10th commandment tells us not to covet. Something our culture, which is said to be built upon the 10 commandments, has long abandoned. Another 80s movie is the movie Wall Street. And in the movie Wall Street, Michael Douglas's character, Gordon Gecko, gives a speech where he says, greed is good, greed is right, greed works, greed clarifies and cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit and ultimately that it will save the USA. Mr. Gecko is wrong. Greed is not good for him, it is not good for his company, it is not good for the USA, and it is not good for your life. In 1 Timothy chapter six, verse six through 10, the apostle Paul says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul is trying to explain to the Ephesians that a life of greed, a life of covetousness is not walking in the light. Some of you are in the darkness of scrolling Instagram and being filled with jealousy constantly. Some of you are caught up in the darkness of the comparison trap in Niceville or whatever community you may live in. Some of you are envious of a family member and the darkness of that is isolating you. Some cannot enjoy the light of God's blessing because you're always in the darkness of trying to get to the next step and the next thing. I first heard this quote from Oswald Chambers, money is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. 
God uses money to impact his kingdom. God uses money for us to provide for our family and to give opportunities to us and to others. But if we are consumed by money and the things that it will bring, it will lead us to darkness. Paul says in our text that sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. You should avoid these things so much that it is not even a question whether or not you are walking in them. Now, before I make the third point here about our morality that is consistent with our identity, let's read verse four again. It says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is the only use of this word, filthiness, in the New Testament. It means, in the Greek, shamefulness or obscenity. And it is connected to foolish talk and crude talk joking here. Both of these phrases are only found here in the New Testament, and they seem to indicate a vulgar sense of humor. Vulgar related to sexual immorality. What Paul is talking about here is not bathroom humor. He's talking about bedroom humor. He's talking about humor that is of a sexual nature, that objectifies people, and that reveals intimacy that should only be kept in the bedroom. Commentator Howard Hayner says, like anger, humor is to be controlled. My third point is to be funny and do not sin. We're told to be angry and do not sin, and I believe we need to be funny and not sin. Now, there's some debate among this, especially amongst my children, but I think I'm pretty funny. That wasn't supposed to be funny. Some of you are funny. Some of you, you got some work to do. We'll help you with your timing, and we're hopeful that you'll get it together. Humor is a gift from God. Humor is a medicine. Humor is edifying. Humor connects people. But we can't let that gift become a weapon. Just a few quick thoughts. I think we need to ask ourselves, is my joke at someone's expense? Am I saying this joke because I really want to tear someone down? Or because I don't care if I tear them down because of the effect that I get from telling the joke? Now, with that being said, there are certain personalities that don't like joking. And then you have the other group, I would include myself in this group, that enjoys joking. Now, the ones who don't like joking are probably a little bothered already right now in what I'm saying. And those of us who are in the group that I'm in that like to make jokes, um, I would just say this to those who don't, like, we're right a little bit that you probably need to lighten up and not take yourself so seriously. But to those that do like to make jokes, I have to say this. We're called to consider others more significant than ourselves. And so we do need to curb our personality for those individuals. We both, we all, should always be looking, how can I serve the other person and deny myself if needed? Another question I would ask is, is my joke really a dig? Is it really my passive-aggressive way of saying what I should have had the courage to say <laughs> directly? 
Am I holding resentment and things? And so I make these jokes to really ultimately allow that to come out. Another thing I would say, and this is a quote from Buddy Rydell in the movie Anger Management, sarcasm is anger's ugly cousin. People have told me and said about themselves that they have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. Now, I haven't studied all of the scriptures in depth, but I haven't found that spiritual gift yet in the Bible. We must guard ourselves that our sarcasm isn't really a mask for us tearing others down. I would also ask the question, is my humor self-centered? And specifically, I ask that in light of timing. Because people have ruined serious moments with jokes that bring the attention on themselves. I think in some serious moments, humor can bring levity and is needed and is medicine, as I said, but sometimes it takes the attention off of God and what he's doing in that moment and what people are going through. And it's not respectful to others and it's just a way of bringing the spotlight back onto ourselves. The most important question I would ask, because I believe it's the fullness of what Paul's getting to here, is is my joke putting sexual thoughts in someone's mind? If you think your humor is a talent, then like any other talent, practice it. Refine it and be held accountable for it. I will write a master class on it for you all very soon. Again, not funny. All right. Lastly here, morality that is consistent with identity, count your blessings. Paul says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Pay attention to the contrast Paul makes here between coveting and using our mouth to bring others down and exalt ourselves to using our mouth to thank God. As the hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God hath done. Thanksgiving can be directly translated Eucharista, the giving of thanks, where we get the idea of the Eucharist, the cup of Jesus Christ from. See, the idea here is that we should be counting our blessings because the ultimate reason that we consider ourselves blessed and have gratitude is because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, symbolized in the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if we are thankful for God, that will abound out of our mouths. Paul illustrates here walking as children of light. Remember, we are to walk as children of light, not out of obligation or expectation of blessing. We walk because we are now in the light. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And what Paul says in verse 5 really gives us the implications of how serious we ought to consider these things. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. That should grab your attention. Here he talks about the one who is mentioned um, in verse three, the sexually immoral, the impure, and the covetous. And he references how a coveter is an idolater, someone who worships something, worships something in the place of God. The relative pronoun refers only to greed and not to the preceding vices. I think Paul writes this way because he needs to clarify how this is evil. You see, covetousness leads to something being the center of your life, and it affects everything else in your life. 
I, I coach uh, rec uh, teams and uh, currently coaching uh, flag football. And uh, my younger team, uh, we had practice this week and we asked them, the coaches asked them, hey, what is your goal for this season? And, you know, of course, it's have fun and, um, you know, get better and all those things. But ultimately, the team feels like they can win it all. And so if your goal is to win the championship, then that means you're gonna to have to make some sacrifices. Like, we probably can't goof around as much in practice, and we're gonna to have to do some of these drills and some of these, instead of these things that you might just find to be more fun because they're gonna make you better. And so we have to revolve around that goal. In our lives, whatever it is that is the goal of our life, other things revolve around that. And we therefore have to sacrifice things for that goal. And if you are coveting something, you are greedy for a lifestyle or a thing, and that's the goal, you will sacrifice other things for that, including the will of God in your life. Paul is stating in verse five that the sexually immoral, impure, and covetous, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If you recall back in April, we looked at how this idea of inheritance shapes the Christian life. Ephesians chapter one tells us that when we have been adopted by Christ, we have an inheritance of the heavenly father. And it tells us that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. It's the seal, it's the down payment of the inheritance that comes. Now here in chapter five, verse five, Paul says, that is not true for the sexually immoral, the impure and the covetous. Now this might confuse you if you've heard that sinners are saved by grace. So then how can it be said that these two types of people or three people, and this isn't the only list, by the way, won't be? Understand that what Paul says in chapter five, verse five, is not the same as what he says in chapter five, verse three. It's a building upon it. Or maybe it's better to say it is a breaking down of it back to the foundation. Soren Kierkegaard said, Sin is building your identity on anything but God. Sin is building your identity on anything but God. When I choose sexual immorality, I say that my sexual gratification is who I am instead of being a servant of God. When I choose covetousness, I say that being gratified or exalted by that thing or that lifestyle is who I am instead of a servant of God. When I choose to be funny and sin, I am a servant to my own self-exaltation instead of God. And I could list other things. Anger, indulgence, boasting. When we sin, we are building, building an identity. Now what if that keeps on? For five years, 10 years, 100 years, forever. Tim Keller says that hell is a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. When we think about this idea of hell and sin, it is true that when we look at the consequences of sin over the course of a year, or five years, or 10 years, or even maybe 70 years, we don't fully understand how that deserves hell. But what about walking in that for eternity? 
how will that play out in our life if we spend an eternity committing that sin and living that way? You see, hell is not people who die and say, oh, now I see if I'd only known before. Hell is people who say, this is who I am. I'm not changing. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, you have the rich man who goes to hell, and it tells us, Jesus tells us that he's still bossing people around. And the rich man doesn't really care about changing who he is. He just doesn't like the consequences now of who he is. But you see, if he's not changing, then it wouldn't be heaven if he were there. And those who end up in hell are the kind of people, that text tells us, who even if someone comes back to them, to them from the dead, they would not repent. Christ has come from the dead to tell us about heaven and hell and eternity, and people still don't trust in him. And so the call then is to walk in the light. This is something that is brought to us. Howard Hayner says, the kingdom is not for saints who have never sinned, but for sinners who have been redeemed by Christ's sacrifice. So hence the strong appeal here for Paul to the professing Christians in Ephesus. He's saying, are you really redeemed by the sacrifice of Christ? And if you're really redeemed by the sacrifice of Christ, then we don't want that going on. And verses six through 13, I think he's giving us a guide to how to treat sin as a Christian. What to do about immorality. He's not admonishing the culture. He's addressing the church. The culture needs the gospel. I wanna say again, if you haven't placed your trust in Christ, I'm not trying to appeal to you to be moral. I'm trying to appeal to you to the one who will make you want to be moral. For Christians though, we love Jesus. We know who he is. And these are warnings here to believers. And so here's what to do about morality. Number one, and I gotta go quickly through these. Don't be deceived by empty words. Don't be deceived by empty words. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of, I'm very creative in my points. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, so people are going to try and deceive you into this. To ignore the wrath of God that is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And to tell you, just follow your heart. Do whatever makes you happy. Or God loves you no matter what. All meaning, who cares what God thinks? When God's word says living like this is dangerous. dangerous. Disobedience is also translated unbelief. And let me be clear about something here. You can read the Bible and still be disobedient. Don't mistake hearing the word for actually being a doer of the word. And today we have progressive, listen, progressive denominations progressive churches that read the Bible about what God says about his justice and his wrath and morality and say, you do you. Ignoring God's word. For millennia, we have had people who, by a means of religious justification, do a few things to ignore the heart of God in scripture. And in our denomination, we have substituted easy believism, admit, believe, confess, for Christ calling us to renounce everything for his sake. 
And so do not mistake being familiar with Christianity as obeying Christ. Christian Smith, who's a noted sociologist, did a study of teenagers and 20-somethings, spiritually speaking. He's written two books on it. And his basic summary is that the average young adult believes in something called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll explain those things. Deism, God is there, but he's absent from our lives. He's not really involved. We don't interact with him that often. Moralistic, God, whoever he is, wants us to be good people. And therapeutic, so we should take whatever we could find in psychology and sociology and anthropology and theology and spirituality and choose what we like best so that we can live a better, more satisfying, happy life. Downplaying the wrath of God that is coming on those who do not stand right with him. Listen, God is love. And so loving people means pointing them to his will for our lives. This idea that it's okay, don't be led away by these vain words. Number two, don't join in. Verse seven says, therefore, do not become partners with them. Verse eight, for, you, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is how you are living. So don't join in with those who are not living this way. Now notice carefully what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, therefore, don't become friends with them. He says, don't become partners with them. He's not telling you you can't be friends with people who aren't Christians. He's ruling out partnerships, an equal relationship. And there will be an inevitable tension in this, but we need to understand Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So we're in this world, but we're being kept from the evil one. Believers should not be deceived into thinking we isolate ourselves and don't live a mission but believers also, also shouldn't be deceived into thinking that it's harmless to just join in drunkenness, sexuality, coveting. Don't join in. Number three, expose it. Expose it. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Part means it's connected to partners, and there's a contrast here between taking part and exposing. Now, exposing unfruitful works doesn't mean walking up to anyone you see at school, work, church, the ball field, and saying, you're a skank, or you're a sleazebag. You do have to have proximity to people to really even know what really is taking place. And Matthew 18 shows us, hey, if someone sins, go to them in private. Then go to them with another or two. Then take it to the church. Galatians 6 tells us to restore people to spirit of gentleness and to keep watch on ourselves as we do this. Now, why would we expose sin? It's counter to our culture. Well, D.L. Moody was known to say, character is what you are in the dark. John Owen said, we are either killing sin or being killed by it. Life is not neutral. Sin is moving us in a direction and it will affect other people. And so we don't want to hide who we are and we don't want people to hide who they are because we can't hide from God. And Paul says there's even more below the tip of the iceberg of sin. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do 
in secret. Notice the strong, serious tone of this. The reality is that while no one may know the thing that you do, they are still harming you and others, and you answer to God for this. So what would we think if we saw your browser history or what you've deleted? What would we think if we saw your credit card statements and how you actually spend your money? What would we think if we knew your thoughts? God sees every bit of it. And Paul is saying here, if we see this in others, we need to address it. The point here isn't to make sure that everyone knows how bad someone is. The point is to make sure everyone knows how good God is. Verse 13 and 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The fourth thing I would say for us is shine light on sin in hopes that sinners wake up and receive the light. That's the point of this. Shine light on sin in hopes that sinners wake up and receive the light. Talk about it in groups, preach about it, and build relationships where we get into the specifics of it because we want people to be brought into the light. I, I, I don't know about you, but I usually wake up pretty early in the morning before the sun is up, and there's been occasional times in my life where I slept too late and the sun begins to shine through the window, and man, it wakes me up. If somebody turns the lights on in my room, it wakes me me up. Here's my point to us today. Wake up. Wake up. Some of you have been hitting the snooze button and having the light shine in your face over and over. Maybe empty words have deceived you. Maybe it's just your pursuit of sexual immorality. Maybe it's the things you covet and are greedy for. Maybe it's your desire to exalt yourself, but you might be dying. This might be a matter of life and death, physically possibly, but spiritually certainly. And Christ, the light of the world, has come to us and says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. You wanna know your way? You wanna know what's true? You wanna experience life? It's here for you. He's not saying clean up and follow me. He's saying follow me and I will clean you up and I will invite you into a life that is my will for you and it is good and you will say I thought I was awake, I thought I saw, but I once was blind and now I see. That is the invitation for you today. And Christians, Jesus says we are the light of the world and the light shines through us and we are to live a life in a way that reflects the light of Jesus exposing sin and helping others to see the goodness of who he is. He's called you to that. Walk in that in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how real it is, how much it pierces us, convicts us, and encourages us to walk with you. God, I pray today that if there's someone who's building an identity 
on something other than you. And they're sacrificing their family, they're sacrificing their health, they're sacrificing so many things. I pray that they would wake up. And God, I pray that the light of the glory of Jesus would shine so brightly that they open their eyes and see. And God, help us as Christians to walk in that light, not to be deceived by empty words or join in with others, but to shine light on sin through the way we live our lives so that the light would become brighter in this world and in this community and in this church and in our homes. In Jesus' name I pray these things, amen.